0: Hi, and welcome to the Trailside Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much he loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. Good morning, Trailside Church. My name is Marcus Jones, and I'm the one of the associate pastors here. Um, I just wanted to take a second and say what an honor and a privilege it is to be able to be here this morning with you all and to wrap up our current sermon series Um, on the Unstoppable Church in Acts. And if this is your first time here with us, I just wanna take a minute to welcome you and to thank you for tuning in with us this morning. Um, And I also wanna encourage you to check out some of the other sermons that Pastor Sean has done over the last few weeks. Um, And you can find those on our website, www.trailside.church and also on our YouTube channel. Um, The most recent um, videos that Sean has done Um, on the Unstoppable Church, are actually on YouTube now for you to watch. So you can also find a lot of information on the website about who we are as a church, what our vision is, who our staff are, and also just find ways to reach out to us. And that way we might be able to see how we can better serve you and even pray for you. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into the message this morning. Um, Father, I just just want to take a second to thank you just want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today and to speak to your church. And Lord, you are moving, whether it is here currently in the the United States with the COVID-19 pandemic or elsewhere in the world that's been affected. God, we know that you are present and that you are here and that you, Lord, are unstoppable. And God, I just pray that you would be with me this morning as I preach this message on Acts 7 and Stephen. And God, I just pray that you would open our ears to hear your voice, open our hearts to receive you, and just be with us. Thank you, God. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week, Pastor Sean spoke on the conflict in the early church as seen in Acts 6, um, and specifically the miscommunication that occurred between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews regarding the distribution of food. He um, spoke to how this issue was handled by not focusing on uh, the demeanors or the attitudes of the people, but actually on the issue itself. And he reminded us of our sins of omission and commission and the differences between them and how they happen but also like on how an action was failed to be performed insofar as the caring of the widows and orphans um, in, the, in that distribution of food uh, from the Hellenistic Jews and how sins of commission happen where we know that things are wrong, be we do them anyway, but we find supernatural forgiveness in this through a just and loving God. And though the Hebraic Jews recognize their mistakes as a sin of commission, of, of, excuse me, of omission, where they let down the, Hellen- the Hellenists in, um, in the distribution of their food, they saw this mistake as one of commission, of one of an intentional wrong that had been done to them. And to rectify this mistake, seven people who must be full of the Spirit and wisdom were to have been chosen from among all of the disciples to thus oversee the distribution of food to the widows and orphans and make sure that it was done equally among them all. All of the men who were chosen were thus prayed over by the twelve and had hands laid upon them and then were sent out to carry out the task of completing that daily distribution of food. And so this week we're going to be focusing on Acts 7, where one of the seven who were chosen, a Hellenistic Jew by the name of Stephen, who was described in Acts 6-5 as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, was brought unjustly before the Jewish Judicial Council known as the Sanhedrin due to false circumstances. Stephen offers what is called an apologia or a Greek term, meaning a formal defense of one's opinion or conduct, but not necessarily for himself. Rather, it is of the Christian faith as a whole. And this was spoken to them in exhortation to the Sanhedrin uh, to just try to cause them to see the hypocrisy in their actions and the judgment based on the false words and accusations that were brought against them. But who was Stephen exactly? While information is somewhat scarce on this, we know some things about him and his character, what type of a man that he was, um, kind of some of his background and lifestyle just based on what we see in the scriptures. And so I'm going to list a couple of things off about him. Um, First, Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. um, And that therefore means it it can be inferred that he was a Roman citizen as well. Um, Is familiar with both Roman customs and culture, and also informed of the Old Testament Scriptures. Um, After Stephen and the rest of the seven were ordained to their tasks, it was said in Acts 6-7 that the word of God spread, and that the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Secondly, Stephen specifically was seized in the next verse, being described as a man full of God's grace and power who performed great wonders and signs among the people. In Acts 6-9, we see Stephen come into conflict with members of the synagogue of the freedmen, who were Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with him. However, it is said that the freedmen could not stand against the third thing that we see about Stephen, which was the wisdom that the Spirit gave to Stephen as he spoke. They then secretly persuaded by means that were not described in the text Some men to say that they had heard Stephen speak blasphemous things, words specifically against Moses and against God. And they further stirred up people, the elders, the the other leaders, the teachers of the law. um, And they went and actually seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, to which they testified that Stephen had never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses himself had handed down to us. This last important detail that we see about Stephen is that after he was brought before the Sanhedrin and that he was accused and the members of the Sanhedrin looked upon him. It was described that we could see his face like that of an angel. Some other important context to keep in mind here about just the culture and the time that we see in Acts 6 and transitioning into 7 is that here, the, the, the there was an event known as the Diaspora, which is the separation of the Jewish people after years of servitude and slavery. And this event scattered many of the tribes across the Roman Empire. And this essentially begat a struggle of the Jewish people to just try to protect their sense of ethnicity, their their identity, their culture. And among this, they they resisted this loss by clinging to their history, their religious customs, and their their traditions in this era and time of change. It's important to note, too, about Stephen that he looked like, sounded like, and came from the same type of background as what many of the very people opposing him and Bearing false witnesses against him now, did themselves, being a Hellenist and even likely himself, Stephen, a a diaspora Jew. And so, given this, we find that Stephen challenges the very core and identity of these people, the ones that accuse him. And this fear that they have in, in their hearts of the change going on. This fear, this heart, and, and the core of that matter, that is what hardened their heart against the wisdom of the Spirit speaking through Stephen instead of trusting in that change in the message that he was bringing to them, which was the gospel of Jesus. And so just to help summarize up to this point, one, the freedmen disputed with Stephen not unlike the way the Pharisees themselves did to Jesus. Two, they couldn't withstand the wisdom, nor what the Spirit was speaking to them through Stephen. Three, these people secretly instigated men, saying that Stephen was speaking against Moses and God. Four, the people, scribes, and elders were stirred up against Stephen, much in the exact same way as they were against Jesus. Five, the people came upon him and seized him. Six, he was brought before the council Seven false witnesses speaking that Stephen had never stopped speaking against this holy place, the temple and the laws that were given. And now we find ourselves here. Moments before Stephen delivers his apologia to the Sanhedrin. The thing about Acts 7 is that it's one of the longest just sermons that we can find in, in the Bible. Um, and so I'm not going to read the, the whole thing to you guys this morning because that's just that's a, a lot of text to go through. So what I'm going to do here um, is I'm going to kind of help break down Stephen's sermon that he delivered, the Apologia rather, to the Sanhedrin. I'm going to kind of take it point by point and just kind of dissect it down a little bit to make it easier instead of reading the whole thing. Now, feel free to read it yourselves later on just to kind of see where all of this fits together. Um, but we'll just go ahead and move forward into this now. So in in his response to these accusations, to what the people had brought against him, Stephen gave a panorama of just Old Testament history, uh, pretty much just from the start. Um, he didn't go so f- in, back so far as to speak of Adam or anything of that nature, but he did talk of Abraham and then move forward from there. Um, so we shouldn't think... However, that Stephen instructed the Sanhedrin on points of Jewish history like they were ignorant of it, because obviously that would, is not the case, for they were the, the highest priests at this point in time sitting there on this judicial council. Obviously, they knew the history. But instead, Stephen emphasized some of the things from Jewish history that they may not have considered and presented it in a very Hellenistic way in this, in this form of an apologia, which was a very structured um, style of not necessarily argument, but just way to present information. And one of the main points here is that, that Stephen likes to focus on throughout, throughout the whole book, and we'll, we'll get more into that in a minute, is that God never confined himself to one place like the temple, and that the Jewish people really seem to have a habit of rejecting the people that God sent to them. And so this really is not necessarily a defense of himself. Stephen wasn't interested in necessarily defending himself as if he were a a criminal on trial. He he just simply wanted to proclaim the truth about Jesus in a way that people could understand, especially a a stiff-necked and stubborn people, as is described. So he was not necessarily making a special defense at all or with one syllable referring to his accusers and their false witnesses, he's just utterly refuting these things and making the most effective defense of his faith. And so Stephen seems to have perceived, and we see this in this, that the old order of things was passing away and a new order was coming. And this becomes particularly clear when he goes on to talk about the temple specifically. It was something very deeply cherished by the Jews. But it too was destined to pass away, and Stephen seemed to have sensed that. His speech is a transitional speech that almost paves the way for presenting the gospel, not just to the Hellenistic Jews and not just to the Hebraic Jews that were there, but also to the Gentiles, which we will see in the very next chapter of Acts. Uh, But it's important to note that it's almost like the Jews, after everything that had gone on with them as a people, that they were wishing to return to these glory days present during the time of David and Solomon. And were holding on to this image of what should be or what could be rather than seeing that they were being led in a new direction through the gospel of Jesus. They were trying to hold on to this this place, this, this location, their temple that was representative of just So much more, not just being a a house of God, but a central place of ethnic identity for these people. But Stephen really just goes on to state that not only was the temple unnecessary for this revelation of the glory of God, the promised land itself was not necessary. God was and is greater than either of these things. And this explained how with him basically saying as much to to people. This is more than likely one explanation of the reason why Stephen was falsely accused of speaking against the temple. He wasn't saying that the temple was such an utterly important place that that was the the center focus of, of everything. He was mainly just defending the point that God is much larger and incapable of being confined in a temple that was made by our hands. We just see this as an example of what happens when a a stiff-necked and stubborn culture meets God. Culture resists change even in the face of truth. And so Stephen really starts off his his apologia by by mentioning Abraham, which we see in Acts seven. Uh, verses 2 through 8. And he just goes down the the history. So the story of Abraham, we see that God sent Abraham to the land where they were upon now with no inheritance, but God promises that he and his descendants after him would possess this land, which was, was Canaan. And it was stated further that for 400 years his descendants would be strangers in a country, not their own, enslaved and mistreated, but the nation that they served as slaves would be punished. And thus, Abraham was given the covenant of circumcision. He begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs in their history. We see Stephen makes the point that God gave no inheritance and no child to you know to Abraham, but even though this was promised, both the land and his descendants, but they had no out he had Abraham had no outward proof of either of these things. He could only trust God for the fulfillment of those promises. And the fulfillment of those promises did not come until Abraham packed, moved, left Haran and his father behind, as he was so charged to do which again was to go to the land of Canaan. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. And at the very beginning, Stephen emphasized that the God of glory appeared to Abraham before he even came into the promised land. So not only was a temple unnecessary for this revelation of the God of glory, the promised land itself was not necessary. Not for God to show up and to charge him and to deliver unto him a task. And to just appear and be with him. And so again, Stephen was not, he was being falsely accused of speaking against the temple here. But it's very easy to see how that could be taken out of context by a people and a culture who were basing the core of their identity around this place, the temple. And it says a side note to this. Again, this is a, a, something that Stephen's going to emphasize and, and just really hammer on a lot throughout this. Is that the church is just not a place. And for us today, where we are, just as a culture, as a as a nation, you know, COVID nineteen and this this quarantine is a great example for us to just a great moment in time for us to examine this for ourselves too. Because again, the church, you know. The, Last couple of weeks, even our church here at Trailside has been empty. But God's church still is. It's still here. Because it's not this building, it's, it's us. How many of us were convicted in a similar way during this time? How many of us found ourselves missing church, but almost found ourselves not necessarily missing the pursuit of Jesus. Of God. One of the questions that I came up with during this time is just like, what did this time of solitude reveal to us about our own faith? Were we as convicted as the Sanhedrin here were in the face of receiving this type of information about the temple? But I digress for now. Uh, so, getting back to Abraham here is his descendants. Abraham's descendants would dwell in a foreign land and into bondage. The promise would not be easy or light for Abraham or his descendants. That was never promised. Yet God promised to judge the nation that put Israel into bondage. And so Stephen here suggested that the idea, uh, he suggested the idea that God knows how to take care of and protect his people is is present and true. And he rested himself in that assurance and challenged the council, Stephen did, he rested in that assurance himself and challenged the council to have that same assurance themselves. Even in the face of all this change, that's happening all around them. And then God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. Um, it's important just to note that circumcision again became the sign of the covenant for Israel. And that covenant was passed down through those descendants of Abraham. So this, this is a prime example of Stephen using the history to start beginning to build his case. Stephen moves on next to Joseph which we see in Acts 7, uh, verses 9 through 20. And I'm sure most of us know the story of Joseph, but I'm just going to kind of go through it a little bit. So the other patriarchs, um, the other sons, um, they were jealous of Joseph, for he seemed to appear to be the, the favored son out of, out of all of them. He got a really nice coat, the whole nine. And... Um, But due to this perceived jealousy that his brothers had for him, Joseph was beaten and and sold into slavery um, into Egypt. Second point here is that God, even after all of that, was with him and rescued him from those troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill, even a Pharaoh king of Egypt. Thus, when a great famine was was striking the land at this time, because of that wisdom that God had given him, Joseph had set apart to the side food and grain to make sure that the nation was going to be able to survive. And when that famine finally did strike and Joseph's brothers came to visit Egypt as they had heard that grain was there, Joseph saw them. And in that second visit where they came back, Joseph presented himself to them, told him who he was, and even Pharaoh himself learned of his family. And in that moment, Joseph had a choice to either pass intense judgment against them or to show them mercy and love and forgive them for what what had been done to him by being sold into slavery and essentially being just forgotten about and left for dead, honestly. But God used Joseph in that moment as a prime example of his mercy, of his of his love. And God redeemed and used that moment and that story of Joseph. And the Spirit moved and was unstoppable against Egypt here through Joseph, and God's will was exerted. And so God was with Joseph. It's another big point that Stephen's making here. Again, Stephen emphasized that the spiritual presence of God was with Joseph the entire time from the beginning of the story even until the end of him forgiving his family for the betrayal that they had laid upon him. Joseph did not need to go to a temple to be close to God because there was no temple for him to go to. Instead, God was with him and present with him the whole time. And so again, Stephen just mentioned the story of Joseph because we can almost see Joseph. We can see God's will and love through him in that moment. Stephen moves on to Moses next in Acts 7, 21 through 43. And the story of Moses is yet another one of these ones that I'm sure a lot of us have heard. But Stephen presents this information in a specific way. And so even after a new Pharaoh rose to power in Egypt, to to whom Joseph meant absolutely nothing. Moses was born. A furthering of the promise that God had delivered to Abraham. There was, at that time, um, Pharaoh was essentially making Jewish people that were having children almost as them to the side as if they were nothing and, and killing their children to try to keep them under a, a stronger, more iron fist and break their will. But Moses was found by Pharaoh's daughter. And as he grew, it was described that Moses was powerful in speech and in action And at one point in time, as he was walking around the the, the kingdom of Egypt, as he he was older, he came across one of the Egyptian taskmasters mistreating one of of the Jewish slaves. And during that meeting with them, Joseph, uh, excuse me, not Joseph, (laughs) Moses actually struck down the Egyptian and killed him. And then there was another, another time where he was moving, moving along and just walking the kingdom. And he came across two of his own people fighting um, and attempted to try to break them up. But one of the Jewish, one of the Jewish people there um, resisted against Moses trying to intervene and stuff in this and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Like, are, are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So we see an example of where one of God's own people was, was set aside and found by Pharaoh's daughter and raised back up into a position of power. Even this this Pharaoh who was much harder than the one that Joseph served under. We see one of his people moved into a position of power and authority again under under God's eye here. And we, we find God's own people here resisting. Who made you ruler and judge over me? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And in just almost fear and shame at this point, Moses fled and went to Midian where he settled and had two sons. But God wasn't done with him yet. After 40 years, God appeared through the burning bush to Moses who stated that he had heard the groaning of his people in Egypt and he had come to set them free. And thus he sent Moses back into Egypt. This is the same Moses that his own people had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge over us? This is the same Moses that led them out of Egypt with God's power and and, and justice. This is the same Moses that returned and led them out of Egypt, performed many wonders and signs in Egypt to free them, parted the Red Sea, led them into the desert for freedom. And this is the same Moses who also told them that a prophet would be risen from the people like him who received the living words upon Mount Sinai and then passed them along to the people. But even still, from the very beginning of Moses' interaction with, the, with his people, they disobeyed him. They resisted him. Even when he was upon the mount and rece- for 40 days and receiving the, the Ten Commandments and the tablets, the people still disobeyed him. They they groaned and cried out to Aaron to give them something to follow, give them give them some idols, give them something, and they they built a golden calf. And thus, was we'll stated at that time that God turned away from them and gave them over to the whole worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Moses, Stephen. Talking about the context of these of these patriarchal stories, like he supposed that his brethren, the people he was speaking to, would have understood that God would deliver them by His hand, but he didn't. But they did not understand this. Using Moses as an example, when Moses offered this deliverance to Israel, he was rejected and was rejected with spite. Israel denied that he had any sort of a right to be a ruler and a judge over them. But Stephen's message to them was plain in a similar way. You have rejected Jesus, who was like Moses, but yet greater than him, and you deny that Jesus has any right to be a ruler and a judge over you. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Stephen again emphasized one of the main points of his reply to the council, that God in His glory and His work was not confined to a temple. God appeared to Moses in the wilderness before there was ever a temple. And then he stated that he, will send, he would send Moses to Egypt, where, and Stephen emphasized that God both called and commissioned Moses here. And one of the phrases Stephen uses is that they rejoiced in the works of their own hands, and that's especially meaningful. One of the accusations against Stephen was that he blasphemed the temple And it wasn't that Stephen, again, spoke against the temple, but against the way that Israel almost seemed to worship the temple as this cultural icon, this veritable Mecca for themselves, instead of the God in the temple, the God outside the temple, God everywhere. The God of the temple. Just as Israel themselves in the days of Moses worshipped the calf in the wilderness, so now they, the Sanhedrin and the people there at this time, Stephen was stating that they were worshiping the works of their own hands in the same way. He further goes on to reference uh, the tabernacle um, in Acts 7, 44 through 50, and gives some brief examples using Joshua, David, and Solomon. Um, and he just, again, reiterates this, that the tabernacle was with Moses and the people in the desert and went with them wherever they went. And having built been built to the specifications that Moses was given, according to the patterns that he saw. Joshua and the people brought it with them after they crossed the Jordan, and there it remained in the land until the time of David. But again, it was not David who built the temple, but Solomon who did. We find Stephen here referencing Isaiah 66, stating, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so we see in Stephen's referencing of the history of Israel here, to the Sanhedrin, we see him making these points that God will show up. He's not just going to be in one place. He will appear to His his, the called his his chosen people. He will appear to them wherever they are. And so his final statement to the Sanhedrin, we see this in uh, verse fifty one, is: "You stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet?" That you or your ancestors did not persecute. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. After this, Stephen was seized. And when the, mem- when the members of the Sanhedrin heard Stephen's final call, when, they, when he brought all of that together and delivered that to them in that, that just one final phrase, they were furious, gnashed their teeth, covered their ears even. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. He says, Verse 56, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They drug him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses of this laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, though, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So even in the face of all of this, in this truth, just as it was described earlier in Acts when he was before the, the freedmen and having these conversations with him, these arguments, they could not stand against the wisdom that the Spirit was speaking through him. And they, the Sanhedrin even after hearing the wisdom of this and knowing that he was correct, even not necessarily just weaponizing their own history against them, but just presenting the information to them in a way that challenges the core and the customs of who they were as a culture and as a people. Instead of listening and being willing to receive this, they did exactly what he said. They rejected him just as the as the people did to Moses. And he died for it. And Stephen's message is something that doesn't just go away with time. And again, that's something here. It's God's presence throughout the history of Israel. As Stephen walked us through as the readers of this passage, as the listeners up to this message this morning, as well as to the, the Sanhedrin, God's presence throughout all of that is what makes us an unstoppable church. The Holy Spirit within us, acting through us, is what makes us unstoppable. It's never ourselves. It's never what we do. It's never our actions, never how much we volunteer here at the church, what we might lead in our lives elsewhere, what we make with our own hands, nothing. It is the Holy Spirit through us and a fulfillment of our call to Him and His will, that is what makes us an unstoppable church. And that's just the thing. It's not just located here in Trailside's building or in any other building out there. Stephen resoundingly speaks that God is anywhere and everywhere that He wishes to be and will appear to His people whenever and wherever He wishes and wills. He met Moses where he was, he met Abraham where he was, he met Joseph where he was, and through them, his spirit, through them, he changed nations. We should never doubt as followers of of Jesus that he can change us, that he can change our culture or he can change any aspect of our lives. If we are only unified by culture, when something threatens it, we will separate as a a people and become divided, just as we see as the early church and the Jews. As we see with the Hellenists and the Hebraic Jews, with these perceived wrongs, as we see between Stephen and the Sanhedrin. If we are only unified together in our suffering, when one of us gets better, the other one is going to be jealous of that and cause division if we are only unified in our own self-centered mission we will inadvertently cause pain and harm to other people in our selfish pursuit of it but if we are together as a people in seeking jesus and listening to the holy spirit within us following our calling within that and trust in the presence of god in our lives and know that He will show up as He has proven time and time and time again that He will, we will be the unstoppable church. We have to remain just as convicted of this and never forget that it is us, that we, we are the bride, we are the church. Our mission even here at Trailside is to love Jesus, to serve others, and to live unified. And loving Jesus is first on that for a reason. If we gather together only to, um, to just serve others and to live unified together in community, we will be serving the world from a place of our own desires. We'll be trying to cause a change in our local community that we feel we could do from our own place of a self-declared righteousness and goodness, and it will not come from Jesus. Like the Jews during Stephen's apologia, we will be serving our own purposes, protecting our own cultures in this sense of identity that we have built around this instead of allowing God to work through us, to change us, and to affect the change in our our area. We'll be pushing forward an agenda of power and authority ourselves that is ultimately self-serving. But by loving and seeking Jesus first, and allowing the execution of his vision to be our vision, lives will change. This city will change. And that is how we will be unstoppable. And so just as Stephen's martyrdom and his death led to the scattering of the church and thus furthering his kingdom, We must die to our own preconceived notions of what community should be in order to allow for His kingdom to spread through us. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for delivering this message to us this morning. And Father, I just pray and that I I ask that you would be with each and every one of us, no matter where we are, as we see that you do and have done and will continue to do. God, no matter where we are in our lives, no matter where we are as a people, no matter where we may be physically located, God, that you would just be with us. Lord, I wanna thank you for being present here with us when we gather, when we go home. And Lord, for just being present with those of us among among the body that are suffering, God, and for blessing those that have been receiving of you. Lord, I just, I'm humbled to be able to serve you in this capacity. And Lord, I just pray that you would be with us as the state starts opening back up, that you would keep us safe, that you would continue to bless and be with our first responders, doctors, nurses, assistants, all of our public servants, everyone that works in the the grocery stores and shops, no matter matter how big or how small, God, that you would just be with them and keep them safe. And Lord, for those among us in our culture, that maybe even unknowingly are being just as stiff-necked and stubborn as the people that Stephen talks about in his sermon today, God, that you would, soften their hearts that this divisiveness that we see, God, would would just start to go away and, Lord, just that you would be there in that tension and in that moment and that ultimately, Lord, no matter what, your will be done. We love you and we thank you and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. And so, as we customarily do, um, I prepared a brief benediction. And I know it's a little bit different since we're not uh, actually gathered here in the building. Um, you know, we're gonna do it anyway. Um, and so the benediction for this morning, as you guys go on to finish out your day today and start your week, yeah, we're gonna read Colossians 3, uh, 3, verses 16 through 17. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God to God the Father through him. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.